53. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. The second reading is from Luke chapter uh, 11, starting at verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Uh, I've had uh, multiple experiences in my uh, Christian life from my uh, teenage years uh, right up to the present. Uh, I don't know if you've had this experience before, but this has been one that I've had more than once. Uh, it's the experience of lying on my back in my bed, trying to pray, and kind of just visualising, imagining that my prayers are kind of like um, helium-filled balloons that float up from me kind of toward God, except that what happens is about two metres above my head, they kind of bump up against the ceiling. And they just kind of sit there and they bounce around. You kind of wonder, is, is this going anywhere? Are my prayers actually getting through to something or someone? I find myself asking the question, are, are my prayers actually getting through to God? Are they going anywhere? Or is it just kind of all hot air up, up there above my bed? Uh, to experiences like that, perhaps you could add uh, all those unanswered prayers that you've prayed. Uh, prayers for particular things to happen in your life, uh, prayers for particular things to happen in the lives of people you know, uh, prayers for particular things to happen in the world around you, but they don't. And so you might find yourself asking, is anyone actually listening? Even if my prayers make it past the ceiling, is there anyone there actually paying attention? Uh, then perhaps you might have the experience of answered prayer. It sounds like it should be a straightforwardly good thing, Right? Uh, prayer, perhaps, for someone you know to recover from an illness. Uh, and yet, what can happen sometimes is that as soon as you get what you've asked for in prayer, the thought creeps in, well, I mean, there's a perfectly straightforward medical explanation for that, isn't there? Did I really actually achieve anything? Like, you know, would, would anything have been different at all if I hadn't prayed that prayer for healing? And so you find yourself asking, do my prayers actually matter? Do they change anything? Now, these kinds of experiences provoke what is perhaps the most fundamental question we can have about prayer, which is simply, why? Why pray? What difference would it make if you didn't? What difference does it make if you do? Why pray? Uh, Paul Miller, the author of uh, that book, A Praying Life, uh, that served as, as a bit of an inspiration for this series, which we heard uh, Michaela reflect on just a moment ago, uh, he suggests that what lies behind all three of these kinds of experiences is a loss of the kind of childlike trust in our Father that we spoke about last week as foundational to prayer. Uh, we began this series talking about messy prayer, the importance of learning to pray like little kids who just bring all their stuff with them wherever they go. 
who ask even when it's really annoying, who just say whatever's on their minds. The ability to be messy in prayer stems from trust in, one, in the one to whom we pray. Now, Paul Miller has a name for the kind of posture that creeps in when we fail to come to God like little kids. He writes this. He says, the opposite of a childlike spirit is a cynical spirit. The opposite of trust, he says, is a posture of skepticism or suspicion or doubt, a posture that assumes shady motives on the part of other people, even for those who on the surface look like they might have our best interests at heart, a posture that expects the worst case scenario or at least nothing to ever really get better or change. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it pretty hard not to be cynical in a world like ours. Uh, and in fact, our, our culture actually trains us to be cynical, to be suspicious about everything, to question the motives of everyone we come across. We typically distrust what we read in the news. We disbelieve what our political representatives say. We question the motives of anyone who has power or influence. Um, I'm actually uh, an expert in cynicism and suspicion, believe it or not, uh, like an actual expert. And the reason is that I have not one but two arts degrees from the University of Sydney. You see, that doesn't actually make you particularly smart. It's not particularly special. What it actually does is just train you literally to doubt everything, to assume that everything is wrong, that there's a power imbalance going on somewhere in it, and that actually everything is to be um, suspicious and suspected. Now, I spent six years of my young adult life basically learning how to be cynical. So if you need any help, I'm your guy. You see, it isn't just our universities, though, of course. Our whole culture trains us to be this way, to question everything, to doubt everything. It's seen as being more honest, actually, to say, you know what, I don't really believe that that's true. Now, to a degree, of course, we're right to be cynical about what we see and hear. Uh, and that's because all too often, the cynics actually turn out to be right, don't they? Uh, even people we tend to trust too often turn out to be far from what they seem. Uh, just this week, uh, I read a really, really troubling article uh, about a well-known, world-renowned, widely respected Christian apologist uh, who, it turns out, over many, many years was involved in various sexual indiscretions and was involved in inflating his CV, his credentials, actually claiming that he'd had lectureships that he never had in order to actually get a, a greater hearing for what it was that he had to say. Uh, in a sense, perhaps even worse than that, reports about those events had been often ignored and even covered up by people high up in the organisation that he worked for. You see, there's a right and healthy degree of cynicism, and that's especially true for us as Christians because, after all, we believe in this thing called sin, don't we? Of course people are not always as good as they seem on the surface. But you see, the problem that we're going to be unpacking tonight when cynicism becomes a problem for our hearts and for our prayers is when it actually becomes our default posture, when cynicism becomes the lens through which we see the whole world. We start to get a skewed vision of the way that things really are. And if we really let cynicism become the default posture of our hearts, then what we won't be able to avoid doing eventually is actually just turning our cynicism on God himself. And if we get cynical about God, then that's going to bring a pretty speedy halt to any real and genuine prayer in our lives. If we're not convinced that God is actually interested in us, or we suspect that his interest in us is purely tangential to some other goal, something else that he's really in it for, then prayer is pretty quickly going to turn out to seem pretty pointless and like a pretty big waste of time. So if we're going to do what uh, we've asked, uh, what we've titled this series, what we're asking God to do in us, if we're going to learn to pray, then what we need is to be able to move beyond cynicism back into childlike trust. 
And so tonight we're going to take Psalm 23 as our guide and see how it is that the gospel gives us resources to do that. We're going to do so under the three headings you can see there. Firstly, the shape of cynicism. Secondly, the shape of trust. And third, the shape of trusting prayer. Cynicism, trust, and trusting prayer. So, let's start there at the beginning. Uh, To a cynical culture like ours, Psalm 23 sounds too good to be true. I don't know if you thought this as it was being read to us earlier. It's a psalm that many of you will have heard many, many times. It sounds kind of naively optimistic when you think about it. Uh, Check out verse 4, for example. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. I mean, really? I mean, isn't that exactly when you should be feeling afraid, when you're walking through the darkest valley? Isn't that exactly where you should be absolutely on alert, anxious, ready to fight, just there and in the moment because anything could go wrong? Whoever wrote this, you might say, clearly had their head in the sand. They're clueless about the reality of things around them. They're just kind of ignoring the darkness. And yet we're given a reason that the psalmist has for this kind of fearlessness. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. You see, what looks like naive optimism to cynical eyes is actually an overwhelming expression of trust in the one whom the psalmist calls his shepherd. Uh, When I read this uh, psalm, as well known as it is, uh, I can't help actually but visualise that kind of shepherd imagery a little bit like this. You've seen pictures like this before, haven't you? Oh, yuck. This is not what the psalmist has in mind. Cute, cuddly Jesus with cute, cuddly lambs. That's not actually what's going on with this image of the shepherd here. Uh, You might have noticed that the heading in this psalm is a psalm of David. Uh, You see that heading a lot in the psalms. Uh, It doesn't actually necessarily mean that David's the one who wrote this psalm, though he certainly did write some of the psalms. What it certainly means, though, is that the author of the psalm had the story of King David in mind as he wrote these words. King David, somehow, his life, his experiences, informs how we understand this prayer. And, of course, if you know the story of David, what was he before he was the king of Israel? He was a shepherd. David himself gives us an idea of what the psalmist has in mind when he uses this shepherd image. In 1 Samuel 17, the young boy David leaves his own flock to go and join the Israelite army who are facing the Philistines. Uh, They're terrified of the Philistine champion, the giant Goliath. And scrawny shepherd boy David turns up and says, I'll fight him for you. All right, says King Saul, feeling probably understandably cynical. All right, I don't think that's a good idea, is what Saul says. Really, you think you're the guy? Uh, Let me read for you, I'll put up here on the screen too, the conversation that they have. This is from 1 Samuel 17, starting at verse 33. Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're just a boy. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. You see what David's doing here? He says to Saul, here's my resume, here's my CV, here's why I'm the right guy to go up against Goliath, because I'm a shepherd. 
No, what does that mean, he says? It means, I've killed bears with my own hands. I've killed lions with my own hands. You see, what the psalmist has in mind here is not some kind of soft focus hallmark card niceness, but something much more like this. Here you go, here's a Maasai warrior spearing a lion. Good luck with that, I say. But apparently they do it all the time. This is what the psalmist has in mind. Someone soaked in the blood of the predators who try to feed on his flock. Uh, As one Old Testament scholar comments, uh, this is not a cosy image. What's on view here isn't someone to give you a hug and a hot chocolate, as nice as that is sometimes. No, this is someone who can actually take on your enemies, who gets down in the mess to fight off the lions around you. Still, of course, the, the cynic in us might say, I'd like that, wouldn't that be great? But I don't think a shepherd like that really exists. No shepherd really puts themselves on the line like that. And if they do, of course, they're doing it for the fame and the glory. They're not really doing it because they care about you one iota. And why would any shepherd worth the name lead their sheep into a dark valley in the first place? Who is this guy? Why does he think that he's a good shepherd? Either they're completely incompetent or they have some ulterior motive. In other words, there isn't a shepherd who exists like this. Do you see the shape of cynicism that starts to emerge in contrast with the image we have here in Psalm 23 of the shepherd? Our experiences of doubt and darkness and confusion can lead us to question whether or not God really is like this. And the result, if cynicism takes root in the heart, is that it pushes God out, you see. It goes, that God, that shepherd, doesn't exist, can't be relied on, either is unwilling or unable to actually do any of the stuff that he says he can do. Paul Miller has a really powerful way of illustrating this uh, in A Praying Life. Uh, He suggests that we take the shepherd out of Psalm 23 and then see what's left. So here it is. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. We've got to cross out every reference in Psalm 23 to the Lord, to God, to the shepherd, and see what actually remains. I shall want me, me, my soul, me. I walk through the darkest valley, I fear evil. Me, me, me in the presence of my enemies. My head, my cup, all the days of my life, my whole life long. You see what happens when cynicism pushes God out of the picture? All that's left is me and my enemies and my wants and my needs and my fears. Cynicism, when it's turned uh, against God, says, you are on your own. There's no one to help you. It turns out that this posture of cynicism is actually uh, more fundamental to the story of the Bible uh, than we might recognise at first. It's actually right there at the very beginning of the story that the Bible tells about sin. Uh, Think back to Adam and Eve's temptation in the Garden of Eden. Uh, What's Satan's strategy, the serpent, as he tempts them? He invites them to turn a cynical eye on God, doesn't he? He says to Eve, did God really say that? What he's doing, of course, is asking if that's really what God meant to say. Maybe he meant to say something different. Or maybe actually he's just not quite trustworthy. Maybe he doesn't actually quite know how things really work. Maybe he's not really all that much in control. He questions God's truthfulness, his faithfulness. And then, of course, he goes on to question God's motives. He says... You know what, if you eat that fruit, you won't die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. 
What he's implying is that God actually fears you as his rival. That if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God and he won't actually have the power and the fame and the glory all to himself anymore. God, Satan says, could have no other reason for giving this one single command he's giving you than that he's playing some kind of power game, trying to keep you out of his court. Satan's strategy from the very beginning is to turn human hearts away from trust and instead to cynicism. To invite us to see the God who made us and blessed us as, at best, a stingy, power-hungry rival who doesn't really have our best interests at heart. Or, at worst, simply not real. There is no God like that. There is no shepherd like that. And the result is that, like Adam and Eve, we simply take matters into our own hands and end up hiding ourselves from God. So interesting, isn't it? The first thing that Adam and Eve do after they've sinned, they hide themselves from God. You see, we do live in a dark world, a cynical world. There's lots that might rightly make us question God's goodness and power and even God's motives. And when that becomes our default position, when cynicism becomes the posture of your heart, then actually what happens is you're just left alone and abandoned and helpless. It becomes just you against the world. In which case, what possible reason could there be to pray? What difference would that make? But there is an alternative, and the alternative is the kind of childlike trust we talked about last week, the kind of childlike trust we see here in Psalm 23. And sorry, point two, the shape of trust. You see, there's a sense in which there is actually something almost too good to be true about this psalm. The kind of trust that it expresses seems almost oblivious to the darkness of the valley. Uh, One commentator, John Goldingay, writes that uh, Psalm 23 is a radical psalm of trust, And he notes that it contains no actual plea. It's a really, really important and kind of stunning observation, actually, when you think about it. There's lots of psalms, you see, that declare trust in God on the one hand, and then on that basis ask him to do something. They make a plea of some kind. Take Psalm 25 as an example. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. You see, a declaration of trust followed by a plea. I trust you, so please do this. But in Psalm 23, the psalmist simply declares that he trusts God, and that's the end of the matter. He doesn't ask for anything at all. In fact, what he does is to tell us about what God is already doing. And you see, it's all in the present tense here. He doesn't say, God will restore my soul. He says, he restores my soul. He doesn't say, you will be with me. He says, you are with me. He doesn't ask God to act because he's convinced that even here in the darkest valley, God is already doing everything that could be asked of him. John Golengay continues, The psalm invites people into a declaration of trust that is both extraordinarily courageous and coldly rational. To the psalmist, the presence and comfort of the shepherd is, even in the darkness, just actually obvious. How can that be the case? How can can trust take this shape for it just to be obvious to us in our hearts that God is on for us and with us, even in the darkness? Well, you see that the the shape of the trust that the psalmist experiences is this, that, that his shepherd provides for his every want. He has pasture and water to restore his life, his soul, even in the darkness. And he sees his shepherd's goodness confirmed as he leads him on the path of restoration. You see that line, for his name's sake? The cynic in me goes, ah, see... There it is, for his namesake, not for me, for his namesake. 
But no, 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 no. What it's saying is God has staked his reputation, his very name on his faithfulness to his people, and that's being confirmed here. He is faithful as he has said that he will be. And the psalmist experiences his shepherd's comfort and protection, even in the face of evil. His rod and his staff, the weapons that a shepherd carries to fend off predators, always ready to do battle against those who come against his people. He then experiences the shepherd's hospitality. Even in the face of enemies pressing in all around, a table is set before him with all of the best things that life can offer. The shepherd lavishes perfume on the psalmist's head, refills his glass with wine. Nonetheless, of course, don't miss the circumstances. This is not actually head-in-the-sand stuff. Because the psalmist is clear, there is evil. It's just that he doesn't fear it. There are enemies, it's just that they don't overwhelm him. What makes it possible to have such a radical trust in God that even in such dire circumstances the psalmist can experience comfort and joy and safety? Well, what makes it possible is that the psalmist actually just knows God. He knows God, not just about him. He knows him personally. He knows his heart. He knows his history with himself and with his people. He knows God intimately. He knows what he's like. You can see that in the way that he speaks about God and the way that he speaks to God. Firstly, notice how he speaks about God. He refers to God using a first-person possessive, if you want some grammar. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, this shepherd image actually is uh, pretty common in the ancient Near Eastern world in which the Old Testament was written, uh, used for kings and people in authority. It's a symbol of power and authority, really. But here, you see, God is referred to not just as a shepherd, not just as one powerful figure who perhaps can do something to help me in my need. And he's not referred to simply as the shepherd, just the only one who could possibly help me if he decided to do so. No, he's spoken of as my shepherd, the one who has power and authority, yes, but who is on for me, who knows me, who engages with me, who is involved in my life. Secondly, because he's my shepherd, he speaks to God. Uh, the verses uh, 4 and 5, the psalmist moves from the, from the first person to speaking in, in the second person. You see, he addresses God directly. You, my shepherd, here's what you are doing for me. Here's who you are. It's quite astonishing, really. There's actually no other religion in the world, to be honest, where you actually get to relate to God like the psalmist does here in Psalm 23, where God actually is one whom you can speak to as a person, as someone who is yours just as you are his. What the psalmist is saying is this, that this Lord, he's mine, and he and I are in this together. When everything else fails, it's him and me against the world. He's interested in me, not in the abstract, but in the concrete particulars of my life. And I can speak directly to him about me and my life because he's mine and he cares. What makes this kind of radical trust possible is that the psalmist knows God. Contrast this again with the the cynicism that we've been talking about, that our world invites us to. Uh, Paul Miller writes, The cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaged, loving or hoping. To be cynical, he writes, is to be distant. But he knows the psalmist is anything but distant from God in this psalm. He claims God as his own and he has a conversation with him. He speaks to him as they journey on the road together. 
And so already there's a question here for each of us to reflect on. And the question simply is this, um, is this what your prayers are like? Are they like this psalm? Do you speak to God in these intimate, personal terms like this? Do you speak to him directly? Do you talk to him about your actual life, the actual circumstances you're facing? You see, that's the kind of prayer that's open to you when you have a shepherd like this and when you can call him mine. But of course, the cynical voice interrupts again. This shepherd's supposed to comfort and protect, right? But we aren't always safe. We aren't always provided for. God doesn't always feel close. So how can I really trust that this God is mine? That he's my shepherd, that he fights for me, that he cares about me, that he loves me? Uh, here we actually have a, an advantage even over the psalmist who wrote this. Because, of, of course, we know this shepherd by an even better name and we've seen him live the kind of life that we need a shepherd to live for us because Jesus himself applies this very label to himself. Uh, it's recorded for us in John 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. See, the reason it isn't just naive optimism to trust like the psalmist trusts here is because we already know the comfort of the good shepherd's rod and staff. We know a shepherd who has laid down in the dust of death so that we can lie down in green pastures. A shepherd who faced the evils of the darkest valley so that we can walk in right paths. A shepherd who prepared a table for us and laid it with the richest fare possible with his own body. A shepherd who drank the cup that the Father set before him so that we can drink from the cup of joy overflowing with his life-giving blood. The shepherd who was forsaken and abandoned and alone so that we can have the Father always present with us and his spirit always ready to comfort us. You see, because we have this shepherd who's laid down his life for us, we can trust him through our own dark valleys. Because we know this shepherd will never want for the Father's love and presence and care. Because we know this shepherd, it makes all the sense in the world to declare with absolute trust that this is who my shepherd is, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That makes perfect sense when you know Jesus, to have that kind of trust, because that's the kind of being on for you that Jesus is, to face the lions for you. What is it that can overcome your cynicism? What can restore your, your soul with a childlike trust? Only this kind of grace and love. Only a shepherd who gives his life for you. And the more you see him with the eyes of your heart by faith, the more you'll be able to trust that he really is with you and that he's really yours and that even in the darkest valley you need fear no evil because he's already fought it for you. And the more you let that shape your heart, your prayers will become less and less cynical and more and more real. That's the heart of the gospel right there. And the heart of the gospel, the shape of the gospel, we talked about this with Jonas and Honey before, is grace, right? And so grace should shape our prayers just as it shapes our hearts and our lives. And so what difference is it actually going to make to the shape of our prayers? Uh, and so uh, as we uh, draw to a close, uh, just some uh, fairly quick practical suggestions about how this will actually shape trusting prayer in our lives. Uh, firstly, uh, cynical prayer is transactional, whereas trusting prayer is conversational. Uh, you see, the best that a cynic can hope for with God is a transaction of some kind. 
There's nothing personal here. There's just an exchange in order to get whatever scraps that the so-called shepherd, if he even exists, is willing and able to give. Uh, how do you know that your posture toward God has uh, started to grow uh, cynical? Well, your prayers are just going to be straightforwardly transactional. You'll go through the motions without any, without any real expectation of getting what you ask for. You'll ask probably only for the bare minimum so that it's not too distressing when you don't get what you don't expect to get. You'll probably actually just ask for stuff that really you know you already have because at least then you know that your prayer will be answered. But you see, the one who trusts God knows that God is right there with them, involved in precisely what they're experiencing at each moment. And so they'll talk to God about what they're feeling and experiencing and what they want and need. And in the very fact of talking about those things to God throughout their day, they're going to be drawn closer and closer into his heart. They'll know deeper and deeper that he is there with them. Someone who trusts God in the presence of enemies and in the face of evil like the writer of this psalm, their prayer is going to be, you know what, actually God, nothing else is working, but it's you and me in this together. Whatever comes my way, it's you and me. And because you're my shepherd, I know that you've got my back. And so let's talk about this. Cynical prayer is transactional, whereas trusting prayer is conversational. Uh, Secondly, cynical prayer is disappointed, whereas trusting prayer is thankful. You see, the best really that a cynic can hope for as they uh, engage in prayer is to not have to be disappointed yet again by not getting the answer that they're looking for. But of course, a cynic always is disappointed. That's kind of what cynicism is. You just actually set yourself up for disappointment because it's easier than actually facing real life. Cynical prayer is disappointed. But trusting prayer actively reflects on how God has been involved in working in your life. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit what what I mean by that. Um, Paul Miller kind of suggests that actually thankfulness is a way, if you like, of putting the, the shepherd back into Psalm 23. Remember we did that little exercise, you take the shepherd out and all of a sudden there's just me and my stuff and nothing else to go with that. How do you put the shepherd back in, right? Active, thankful prayer is at the heart of that. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about my own uh, prayer life. My uh, prayer life has never been particularly structured. Uh, I'm not someone who has often uh, gone through any great length of time where I've had a set time in my day when I do my devotions. Uh, I actually don't think that's the end of the world. I actually don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. Uh, In fact, when we did a survey back in December um, of our congregations asking people to answer some questions uh, about their prayer lives, most people said, you know, actually, I don't have a a set time when I do my devotions. Um, I think it's okay in part because actually we want our prayer right to be conversational, right? Not to be kind of set to a, a particular formula necessarily, not to be too transactional, but to actually be a conversation. And so actually just to to pray throughout your day as things come up, as you see things, as you have thoughts, to to bring those thoughts to God in prayer, really important actually to be doing that. Nevertheless, I want to get more structured in my prayer life. And the reason is that I want to make more time to really actually deliberately reflect on what God has been doing in my life, in the actual circumstances of my life day to day. To think back on the last 24 hours and go, where did I see God at work there? I might not have noticed it in the moment, I might not even be quite sure what it is that he's doing in, the, in the, the bigger picture, but to actually say to God, show me where you were at work in my life in this last day. And that's, you see, an active kind of thanksgiving, to be able to say thank you to God for those things. And what it does actually is turn those kinds of moments that could be opportunities for cynicism into opportunities for deep, thankful prayer. 
Active reflection on God's involvement in the intimate details and everyday events of your life is going to turn those same experiences that could move you further away from God, even darkness and evil and want, even facing up to enemies, into opportunities to actually see his work in your life. Cynical prayer is disappointed. Trusting prayer might might also be disappointed, but it's going to look beyond the disappointment to thankfulness to see how even perhaps in our disappointments God was at work. Finally, cynical prayer hides, whereas trusting prayer repents. Remember back again to the Adam and Eve story from the garden. So interesting. They are cynical about God. They take matters into their own hands, pushing God out of the picture. What's the next thing they do? They hide from God. They no longer trust him. They no longer trust that actually he will love them and be on for them and care for them. They're worried to show him what they're really like. They don't want to be seen anymore. Now, I wonder if sometimes actually our prayer lives are a bit like this as well. I know mine are. I often find that when, I, when it's hardest to actually bring things to God in prayer is when I know that there's something going on in my heart or my life, some area of sin, that I just can't bear to bring to God and face up to him with it, just having messed up again in some way. And so I go, no, 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 I can't pray to God about those other things until I've got that sorted out, but I kind of feel a little bit nervous about raising that with the Lord of the universe at this moment. And so I don't actually bring the other parts of my life to God in prayer. But you see, if the Lord is my shepherd, if I can address him directly as you, if I can speak to him as a person, and if he's already fought the lions off for me at the cost of the life of the Lord Jesus, then of course I'm safe with him. Of course nothing that I've done, even that thing I keep doing again and again and again, can actually get in the way of his love and care for me. That's what a shepherd does. It just keep, he just keeps beating away the predators as they come. You see, if you learn to trust God like a little child, then you'll be more and more able to be open and honest about yourself, with yourself, with God, even perhaps slowly but surely with other people. And you'll be able to ask him to change you trusting that he won't abandon you, but he'll continue to restore your soul. That's what a good shepherd does. So there are some thoughts for you. Uh, Cynical prayer is, uh, is transactional prayer, whereas trusting prayer is conversational. Cynical prayer is disappointed, whereas trusting prayer is thankful. Cynical prayer hides from God, whereas trusting prayer repents. And so let me pray for us now that God will be continuing to develop that kind of prayer in us. It will teach us to pray like this, so that in doing so, he might draw us deeper and deeper into his own heart. Let's pray. Our Father, how good it is to know that you really are the kind of shepherd who you say you are. How good it is to know that you are mine and I am yours to know that we can speak to you as a person, that we can actually just bring our lives to you, that we can speak them to you, that we can ask you for what we need and what we want, that we can share our disappointments and our distress. Father, we long to live lives so soaked in prayer that we know that more and more and more. And so in a world that so encourages us toward cynicism, toward doubt, toward suspicion, even about you, Father, we ask that you will be helping us to have this kind of childlike trust. And we know the way that's going to happen is to be drawn again and again and again to our good shepherd, to the one who lays down his life for us so that we might have his life. Father, if our Lord Jesus has done that for us, then there's nothing that you won't give us. There's nothing that can separate us from your love. 
And so, Father, help us into trusting prayer. And as we grow in that, as we lean into that, please, would you change our hearts to know your love and care for us more and more to be drawn deeper and deeper into your own heart for us and for one another and for the world. Father, teach us to pray. Amen.